from you an excerpt from a school essay from a 10th grader in Arkansas. Now, who's around that age of 10th grade, which would be 15, 16, something like that? Who's around a couple? Listen up, girls. Listen up. Put your discipleship caps, learning caps on. This is what she says. Hi. My name is Crystal Michelle. I decided to wait for sex, among other things, a while back. I have pledged to God that I would not even kiss a male until the pastor says, and now you may kiss your bride. If a boy says, real men are sexually active, I say, so is my real dog. <laughs> If he says, if you love me, you let me, I say, if you love me, you wouldn't ask. If he says, everybody's doing it, I say, not true. I'm somebody, and I'm not doing it. If he asks, have you ever done it, I respond with, have you ever made the wonderful discovery of knowing Jesus Christ? If he says, I won't get you pregnant, I say, that's right, because you're not going to touch me. <laughs> if he says, if you won't let me, I'll find someone who will, I say, it's been really nice knowing you. If he says, but you owe me, I say, okay, then I'll get you a keychain or something. <laughs> We can all throw ourselves into that type of scenario. It can easily and quickly be us that is having that type of dialogue with our own sets of temptations. It can be us that is having that dialogue with the pressures of life. It is easily us that can have that type of dialogue with the cultural influences that are pressing their way upon us. That type of dialogue where our integrity is being called to be put in question or our faith is being called to waver. It's in those moments, guys, in that heated exchange when we determine if Christ is enough alone, Christ alone, is He enough to combat those temptations and those struggles that we go through? Now, whether we know it or not, whether we know or not what it means to be content, completely content, in Christ alone, I want to assure you that it goes way beyond the idea of being well-disciplined. It goes way beyond the idea of being well-informed. It is a matter of being well-satisfied. Well-satisfied by an experience that I have, an experience of the heart. Now that's simply the idea that we want to explore this morning, and I want to ask you to open your Bibles to Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. We're going to look at this passage, we'll be looking at this probably for two weeks. As we look at a disciple's satisfaction of knowing God. Matthew 22, verses 23 through 33. 
same day, the Sadducees came to him who say that there's no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Say, teacher, Moses said if a man dies having no children, his brother must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers among us. The first married and died, and having no offspring, left his wife to his brother. So too the second and third, down to the seventh. After them all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, of the seven, whose wife will she be? For they all had her. Now we'll explore this more next week. We want to focus our attention starting on verse 29 today. But Jesus answered them, you are wrong. Because you neither know the scripture nor the power of God. For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was said to you by God? I am, present tense, I am, not I was, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac. And the God of Jacob, he is not God of the dead, but of the living. Great news. And when the crowd heard it, they were astonished at his teaching. Let's pray. Fathers, we approach you this morning, Lord. We do so with hearts that are full of gratitude, God. We, God, need to experience this moment, this day, in our lives, the power of the resurrection, Lord, would you help us to do that? Lord, we have experienced it upon our conversion, Lord, and we celebrate our salvation this morning, but new life does not end for us there, God. Help us to see, help us to know, help us to experience the reality of ongoing new life for your glory ultimately. That's our plan. That's our need. And we would ask these things humbly in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to talk about a disciple's satisfaction of knowing God. So today we're going to look at two principles only. The first, if you're taking notes, a disciple finds satisfaction in the experience of God. A disciple finds satisfaction in the experience of God. And secondly, a disciple finds satisfaction in the authentic gospel. And that's going to be very important. So let's look at this first principle together. A disciple finds satisfaction in the experience of God. Verse 29. But Jesus answered them, You are wrong because you know neither the scriptures will stop it. The Sadducees were the smallest, yet at the same time the most wealthiest of the Jewish sects in Jesus' day. They controlled the temple, they controlled the priesthood. The high priest and the chief priests were almost invariably always Sadducees. They claimed to be very well-rounded in the scriptures, but there was a great problem. The great problem was they did not believe in the resurrection. They did not believe in angels. They did not believe in spirits. They did not believe in anything that was invisible. They did not believe in anything that couldn't be easily explained. They were the rationalists of their day. Their religion was limited 
to the reality of their minds, which means that their God was as, as expansive as their minds. Now, for some of us, that may make for a pretty small God. And I'll speak on a personal note there. Now, most of us, listen, most of us would come to the conclusion and say that Scripture has a place, if not the place, of authority over our lives. And I want to commend you if you fall into that category. It's a great starting point. But I want you to note that Jesus always couples Christian confession with Christian action. Always. That's why Jesus would say in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do what I say? And I think it's Jesus' way of saying it's very important that you know that your confession always has to be coupled with action. They always go together. They always complement each other. You will know how authoritative Scripture is in a believer's life by the influence that it has and how it moves them toward biblical action. Now, my daughter's admission of my place of authority doesn't necessarily ensure that she's going to submit to that place of authority. It's only going to be evident that my daughter is submitting or falling under that place of authority as she says, yes, dad, with her life. Now, isn't that simply the tension that exists from being human? Isn't that the tension that exists, that great war, that great conflict that comes between the flesh and the spirit? That great battle between faith and rationale, that great war between independence and submission, isn't that the great war that we all fight? I have an 11-year-old and a 14-year-old daughter, and I know what it is that they're seeking after. I know what it is that they're gravitating toward as they continue to get a little bit older. Listen, they're seeking independence. Now, that may not be all bad, but even that has to rest in a certain framework of God's influence, doesn't it? I know that they're gravitating toward and wanting independence. What does that really mean? I mean, what does it mean for an 11-year-old or a 14-year-old or a 20-year-old or a 30-something, 40-something-year-old to want to be independent? What does it really mean? It simply means that I am bombarded with the temptation and a lot of times, to be quite frank, the desire to want to think independent of any type of outside authority. Now, you may say, wait a minute, what's wrong with that? <coughs> what is wrong with allowing your daughters to learn to think for themselves? What's wrong with them coming to their own conclusions as they think for themselves? What's wrong with them developing their own convictions? What's wrong with them learning from their mistakes? Well, let me try to explain to you what I find wrong. Okay? What I find wrong is that ultimately the idea of being independent or the idea of thinking independently ultimately for a Christian is a contradiction of terms. And it's a contradiction of terms because we exist, we have our existence in the framework of God's authority and God's influence over our lives that determines how we think, that determines how we act. Now listen, if my daughter is not grounded in that reality, if we are not grounded in that reality, 
if we have not made peace with God's intentions for our lives and God's motives behind those intentions, I know for my daughters that's going to mean a life of tension that exists between her and the Lord. Why? Because in her desire to be independent, I'm coming alongside of her and I'm updating her to the reality that she cannot think independently outside of the influence of God's authority. I'm coming along and I'm reminding her that it is a most dangerous thing to be thinking and living on your own ideas. I'm coming along and I am reminding her that the greatest heartaches and the greatest regrets come when people take it upon themselves to think independent of any type of outside source. Listen to love. Determining what is right and what is wrong. Determining what is good and what is bad. Determining what is evil and what is pure. Determining what is fair and what is unfair. That is that is exclusively God's prerogative. Exclusively God's prerogative. And it is sinful for me to assert any type of independence or any type of rationalism and think that I can come to these types of conclusions outside of His authority. It's sinful. Now listen. If Jesus' claim is valid... He's suggesting that being wrong, and let's stop there for a moment, because we want to understand what Jesus' perspective of being wrong means. When Jesus talks about being wrong, he's talking about being wrong in our thinking. He's not saying, okay, the correct answer was C. You mark the box B, you're wrong. He's talking about a habitual style of wrong thinking. Not only that, he's also making the suggestion that we are being made to wander away from the standard of truth. He's, being, he's, he's suggesting that we are being made to wander about in our thinking. Now, so let's back up. Because if Jesus' claim is valid, he is suggesting that being wrong, wrong in our thinking, is something that is imposed upon us as a consequence of a previous decision to say, I choose to not know God. Now that word know that Jesus uses, it's from a Greek word oida. And it means, it's the idea of a possessed knowledge rather than the idea of acquiring knowledge. It's the idea of a direct personal encounter. The idea of a direct personal experience rather than the gathering of facts. <clears throat> Imagine these two scenarios with me, if you would. For whatever reason, you are sitting in on a lecture from your family doctor. And your family doctor begins to explain to you the process of pain that takes place when you smash your thumb. And he says, okay, it's important that you know when you smash your thumb, this is what's going to happen. You're going to damage the nerve endings in your thumb, and that's going to send sporadic, abnormal, and chaotic impulses to the brain. Your brain's going to interpret those impulses as pain. Okay? Now, the next day, you're about your business, men, you're in your workshop, and you smash your thumb. Ladies, you're hanging up a picture in the house, 
and you smash your thumb. It's broken, it's bleeding, it's bruised, it's swollen, it's tender. What's the difference between those two experiences? You see, that little mini lecture that you sat through, that allowed you to know of pain intellectually. But when you experienced the, the smashing of your thumb, it gave you a much deeper knowledge of the pain that was previously talked about. It allowed you to know of pain intimately. That is exactly what the Apostle Paul means in Ephesians 3.19 when he talks about knowing the love of God. Listen to what he says. I pray that you may know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Now let's stop there for a moment. Now think about what he's saying. I pray that you would know this thing that surpasses knowing. It's almost as if the Apostle Paul is saying there is a form of knowing that is much more superior to another form of knowing. The same way that one form of love is much more superior to another form of love. The way that I love my wife has superiority over the way that I love my car. The way that I love my wife is going to shape and influence and keep me on the straight and narrow regarding other women. The way that I love my wife is going to shape many decisions that I make all throughout my life. And, and the love that I have for my car is very much a fleeting thing. I could probably do without it come tomorrow. So Paul is saying there is a form of knowing that is far superior to another form of knowing. So we're going to fall back on the Greek language for a little bit. And reread Ephesians 3.19. Paul says this. I pray that you may experientially. I pray that you may emotionally. I pray that you may intuitively, intimately, deeply, excitedly, fervently, lovingly, passionately, excitedly, warm-heartedly, enthusiastically, frantically. I pray that you may know through experience for yourself the love of Christ that surpasses an intellectual knowledge that is completely void of any type of experience. I pray that you know that more than you have it here. I pray, beloved, that you have it here because having it here is what's life-changing and what's life-altering. In the late 1800s, in an old French church in Burnham, Adolf Reichel was conducting the final rehearsal of his choir production of the Messiah. The chorus had triumphantly sung through to the point where the soprano solo takes up the refrain of, I know that my Redeemer liveth. The soloist was a beautiful woman whose voice had been thoughtlessly trained. As the tones came out high and clear, the listeners were filled with wonder at her perfect technique. Her breathing was faultless. Her note placing was perfect. Her enunciation was beyond criticism. And after the final note, all eyes were fixed on Raquel to catch his look of approval. Great was the surprise, however, when a sharp tap of the baton sounded as a command for the orchestra to pause. And with a look of great sorrow, Raquel said to the singer, My daughter, do you really know that your Redeemer lives? Do you know that? Why, yes, she answered with a flushed face, I think I do. And then Raquel said, 
Then sing it. Then tell it to me so that I will know. Tell it to me so that all who hear you will know. Tell it to me so that all who hear will know that you know the joy and the power of the reality that your Redeemer lives. Amen. Then, with an imperious gesture, he motioned for the orchestra to play again. This time, the woman sang with no thought of herself. She sang with no thought of her technique. She sang with no thought for the applause of her hearers. She sang the truth as she knew it and had experienced it in her own soul. And all who heard wept under the spell of her voice. And as the singer stood forgetful of applause, the old master stepped up and with tears in his eyes asked again, Daughter, do you believe that your Redeemer liveth? Yes, she replied, I certainly do. And the old man kissed her on the forehead and said, You do know, for you have just told me through your whole being. Listen, beloved. I will be the first to say that following Christ is based upon the platform of objective truth. What God says will always trump how we feel. But I want to assure you that objective truth has a much deeper purpose of just commanding me. Objective truth has as its deepest purpose compelling me to fill to feelings and experiences with God that can't be contained by the human language. Objective truth is not only so that I can adequately define the characteristics and the love of the bridegroom. Objective truth is designed so that my heart begins to beat out of my chest when I see Him in all of His glory and in light of all that He has done for me. Listen men, if you are students of your wives, if you are studying your wife, I want you to know that there is a process of experience that takes place. Wednesday night, Jason talked about the process of salvation. For the Christian, there's also a process of experience. If you're a student of your wife and you're gathering information about your wife, I'm certain that that's not just for the purpose of listing that information for a reference point. I'm most certain that the purpose of gathering that information should be for the purpose of leading to greater intimate experiences with your wife. I am a student. I seek objective truth. I know objective truth. It starts here. But it always has the purpose of leading me to a, great, a greater experience with my God. And let me tell you why that's so important, guys. It's so important because we can so quickly have false feelings that are based on false premises because we do not intimately know God. Let me give you an example. If I falsely believe that God is not in control of the intricate details of my life, if I falsely believe that God is not sovereign over every area of my life, that's going to result in something. That's going to result in false feelings of fear. That's going to result in false feelings of anxiety. That's going to result possibly even in false feelings, <clears throat> false feelings of anger. 
It's going to lead me to false feelings if I think falsely that God is not in control. And it's going to be real important to know that that process of experience can never be reversed. It's always going to be objective truth leading me to experience with God. It's never going to be my experiences determining what truth is. So anytime that I have out-of-control emotions, anytime that I have out-of-control fears, anytime that I have out-of-control sins, anytime that I have out-of-control lusts of the flesh, it's always a result of something. Ultimately, it's a result of a mind and a heart that has not been experientially saturated with the God of the Scripture. Now, how do we do that? How do we come experiential? With God, I don't know that I know all the answers to that question, but we're going to begin to dive in today because the disciple finds satisfaction in the authentic gospel. Let's look at verse 29 again. But Jesus answered them, You're wrong. Why are you wrong? Because you neither, because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. The soprano soloist introduces us to the reality that knowing God is a pursuit that takes place because we understand that our Redeemer lives. We don't come to the conclusion that our Redeemer lives because we have assessed all of the historical facts that our Redeemer lives. We come to the conclusion that our Redeemer lives because we've experienced newness of life that comes from our redemption. It's going to be most important, beloved, that the glory of that reality goes where it must go. It's important to know that the glory of the reality of our redemption, it must go heavenward. It must go Godward. It must, the glory of God and the glory of our redemption demands that the reality of our salvation and the glory for it goes toward God. Because the resurrecting power of the gospel that brings dead men to life without the aid of dead men, it's at stake. It's at stake if we think otherwise. Now listen, beloved, I do not desire to break any hearts, but you do not have the ability to take something dead and bring that dead thing to life. You do not have the authority... You do not have the authority to do what it takes to be saved from the wrath of God. Only the power of God, as seen through the gospel, the authentic gospel, has the power to save us from the wrath of God. And there is absolutely nothing that anybody here can do about that. The reality of the gospel, it orients us back to why we can know God and how we can know God. And Paul says it so beautifully. In Galatians 4, 8 and 9, he says this. <clears throat> Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. Verse 9 is the key to this whole thing. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, emphasis, or rather to be known by God. Listen, when I am tempted to manhandle the power of God, and I begin to want to think that I have come to know God, the authentic gospel assures me of a greater biblical truth. And that greater biblical truth is not that I have come to know God. The greater biblical truth is I was chosen to be known by God. Now that's going to be big. That's crucial because 
Paul orients us back to the truth by throwing the weight of that scripture on the truth that we have come to know God, or we've come to a place where we can know God, or we've come to a place where knowing God is even desirable, not because of our own effort, but because we were first acted upon in our conversion. Listen, beloved, knowing God is the result of God first choosing to know you. Knowing God is the result of God first choosing to know you rather than you choosing to know God. I think it's most interesting that Paul doesn't say, <clears throat> he doesn't say, God chose for you to know him. Did he say that? He said, God chose for you to be known by God. Now what's Paul saying there? Why that emphasis? <clears throat> I'm going to tell you why that emphasis. It's simply Paul's way of highlighting the priority of grace that is as far-reaching, beloved, as our sin. Our ability to know God stems from one place primarily. Our ability to know God stems from first being singled out by grace. And what's amazing about that is that it happens in the midst of our sinfulness. See, the greater grace is God knowing me as the wretched sinner that I was and choosing choosing for me to know him anyway. That's my boggling. And it's almost as if Paul places the emphasis and the weight on us being known by God rather than us knowing God as if that should be the motivation and the inspiration for the other. I want you to pay attention of the fact that God chose for you to be known by Him rather than Him choosing you to know Him. Let that motivate you in knowing Him. Christianity teaches us that God loved us to the point that He did not abandon us in our sins in the midst of our great rebellion, and in the midst of us abandoning Him. But I believe that John 3.16 has a much greater purpose, although this is part of it. I think John 3.16 has the purpose, in part, of introducing us intellectually to a God who loves us, and the ability to define that is unfathomable. You can't do it. But it's when God introduces that reality to our hearts, and He chooses to know us, that's when we transition into becoming completely satisfied in Him. That's what, that's what loving Him because He first loved me really means. It means that God has desire to take action and know me when I would have had no desire to know Him otherwise. How many of us have had thoughts and feelings this week? How many of us have been defined by a disposition that would cause you to flee if they were placed upon the screen? How many of us? I know I would. And the reality is this. God chose to set His perfect love on you in spite of that knowledge about you. How many of us have had outbursts of anger? How many of us have had lustful thoughts? How many of us have had lustful actions? How many of us have seen ourselves at our nastiest recently? And the reality is that God has set His love on us and chose to know us anyway. That, beloved, is unfathomable in the ability to define that. J.I. Packer says this. There's a tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, 
so that no discovery can now delusion him about me the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. I am graven on the palm of his hands. I am never out of his mind. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me, and there is no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. No. We had some dear friends, and I think I may have shared this before, we had some dear friends that we spent some ministry time with called the Millers, Tim and Lane Ann Miller. And Lane Ann would tell about, she passed away several months ago, and she would tell about when she was adopted. Okay? She went to her mother, stepmother, and she said, listen, why did you adopt me? Stepmother says, well, we adopted you because you were pretty much the ugliest baby that was up for adoption. You're ugly. And we had pity on you, and so we chose you because you were so ugly. Now, that didn't choose to continue to be a reality for her because she ended up being a very attractive woman. They said, look, we chose you basically because you were so ugly. Now, listen. I, this is how this process works. I must know him. It's not an issue of he's forcing me to know him. It's not an issue of I mean, he's demanding me to know him, but that's not even my motivation. When I know of a God who has my name graven on the palm of his hands, who chose me, even though I was by far the ugliest of sinners, something is happening. There's a transition taking place. I must know him. It's crucial that I know him. I must learn from him. I must learn what real love really means from Him who shows such grace to such sinful people like myself. I must know Him. I have to know Him. It is imperative that I know Him. It is most crucial that I know Him, that I can learn from Him who says your sin is what makes you a candidate for grace. I have to know about Him. I must. I have to. I have no options. Now, I want to ask you a question, beloved. How do you feel about the idea of being told you're wrong? How do you feel about the idea of being told you might be wrong about this thing? Because that's what Jesus basically says. How do you feel about hearing that idea? How do you feel about saying that to someone else? Especially in today's ever-changing culture when it's probably the most unpopular thing to say. After our recent election, the very first thing that Newt Gingrich did was he said, listen, the Republican Party has to come up with a way to begin to reach out to homosexuals. For the very first time in over 100 years, 100 plus years, the Boy Scouts are revisiting. I'm not turning this into a homosexual agenda. Know that. But for the very first time, the Boy Scouts are considering dropping their ban on homosexuals and allowing, allowing homosexual... Uh, scout leaders and homosexual scouts to be into the Boy Scouts of America. Why? I think it's because it's such an unpopular idea for somebody on the outside to look in and say, listen, you're wrong. You're just simply wrong. Now the temptation is to say, you know what, that is so impolite, that is so politically incorrect, but I think in the context of a local church, 
in the context of brothers and sisters, I think it very much could be courage to say, you know what? I love you. Man, I love you in the Lord. I love you in Christ. But I need you to know this. You're wrong. You're wrong. And you're wrong because you're being rational. You're wrong because you're leaning more on your intellect than you are on the reality of the authentic gospel. How do you feel about that? What's going on in your life this morning that may cause you to realize, you know what, this just may be an area that I'm wrong in, whether it's a disposition, whether it's a fear, whether it's an anxiety, whether it's habitual sin. What's going on in your life right now where the Holy Spirit may be speaking to you and saying, listen, without condemnation, there's no condemnation. Look, we're talking about a holy God. What could God be saying to you this morning where he's just simply highlighting the reality? Listen, I love you, but you're wrong. Tim Keller tells the following story in closing about the power of Christ's resurrection. He says this. A minister was in Italy. And there he saw the grave of a man who had died centuries before, who was an unbeliever and completely against Christianity, but a little afraid of it too. So the man had a huge stone slab put over his grave so that he would not have to be raised from the dead in case there's a resurrection from the dead. Doubtful that's one of He had insignias put all over the slab saying, I do not want to be raised from the dead. I don't believe it. Evidently, when he was buried, an acorn must have fallen into to the grave. So a hundred years later, the acorn had grown up through the grave and split that slab. It was now a tall, towering oak tree. The minister looked at it and asked, If an acorn, which has power of biological life in it, can split a slab of that magnitude, what can the acorn of God's resurrection power do in a believer's life? Listen, beloved, where are you wrong? Where are we wrong in our thinking? Where are we wrong in our assessments of Scripture? Where are we wrong in the way that we're living our lives without condemnation, knowing that God loves you enough to say you're wrong? Because where you are wrong, I want you to know that there's a place for healing, and it's through God's resurrection power of His Son. Jesus said, I am the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. I am their God. I am their God right now. Where is it in your life that you know that you're wrong, your heart is wrong, your thinking is wrong. Where is it? Because God wants to give to you resurrection life to make that wrong right. And He can do that. Do you believe that? I want to ask if you wouldn't buy your heads with me.
And he does so awesome. God does that without condemnation. So amazing. Grace really is something undeserved, isn't it? God loved you enough to make himself known to you in the midst of our sinfulness. Really is kind of like, really is kind of like walking into a church and picking up what this baby is. Look at who we are, who we've been, our rebellion against the Lord, how we've lived our lives. Guys, don't allow wrong things to prevent us, to prevent you from intimately knowing who God is. We're not rationalists, but the Christian life is very rational. So, Lord, today we would ask God that by your grace, by the power of your Holy Spirit, by resurrection power, you would reveal to us this morning, this moment, in those areas, God, where we're wrong. That you would lovingly shepherd our hearts this morning, and you would point us in the direction of greater pastures. You would point us in the direction of clearer, fuller waters, God. And you don't do that by taking your staff and beating us down. You do that by lovingly, gently leading us. That's our prayer. That's our need. If you would lead us to those waters where we can see who we are, what we're doing, where we're at, where we're living. And then, God, we would even be a people that would love each other enough to be able at times to say, listen, love you so much. We want to be here. Yeah, Lord, we're, we're excited about being here. We're thrilled. We find it all joy, counting all joy to be in your presence with each other. God, we want, we want you. We want, we want to be completely satisfied in you alone. God, show us those areas where we'll soon be wrong. And I know that you love us enough. Show us those areas, God, so that we can be about the greatest task of all. And that's just knowing you, God. Help us to be that for you, Lord. In 